Hello, and welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. We are your host, Stephen Craig. And Parker Dillman. This is episode 161. A quick announcement before we jump into the podcast. Macrofab will be at South by Southwest in Austin, Texas this year. We are teaming up with Particle.io to put together a hardware happy hour. It will take place on Friday, March 8th, which is in like two weeks, or is it this week? It's next weekend, yes. Um, That's good, because I have to be there. Uh, From 4 p.m. to 8 p.m. at the super cool Jester King Brewery. Check the show notes for full details and to RSVP. Join us for food and refreshments and network with fellow hardware nerds and kick off your South by Southwest weekend in style. Is Jester King, is it a Jester King brewery in the town or is it the official one that's a little bit outside of town? It's the one that's a little bit outside town. Okay, that one is awesome. Uh, whatever, I can't remember the name of it, but there's a little pizza place that they have on the on the site. That pizza is excellent. They're providing the food. Ooh, nice, nice. Yeah, Jester King does a lot of um, like stouts, and they it's have a whole sour and- room and stuff. Yeah, they have excellent beers. Yeah, and it's I'm um, hopefully the weather is really good because it's that place is really nice just to hang outside under like the trees and stuff. It's very hill country, e. <laughs> so like rocky ground and dead trees. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Partial desert part trees. Yeah. Yeah, but it's it's no you're nowhere near the summer, so it's gonna be gorgeous. You know. Well. Oh yeah, it's gonna be nice unless it rains. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I've been working on the Parallax Propeller Dev Stick, uh, the Type C edition is what I've been calling it now. So it has like its own um, designation, I guess, to differentiate from the previous versions. Rev C, like the original one that I showed you weeks ago like the original green one i had Mm -hmm. that was the original prop dev stick i designed and then i made the redux version which is like when i basically started macrofab i made the redux version um and now so this is type c edition so the routing is almost complete of all the new stuff Uh, i moved from 0603 to 042s to kind of compact the design i kind of want to like reduce the width it's like 1.1 inches wide so 100 1,100 mils wide. Okay. And I want to like get that to like 900. Mm. And I should be able to now. Uh, and I moved the QFP parallax propeller to the QFN, which I can't remember what the actual size difference is, but it's like it almost looks like it's 75% smaller because I think it's like 0.5 pitch to 0.4 pitch, I think. Okay. So just everything's getting smaller. Yeah. Everything is getting smaller on it. Um, and then I changed the voltage regulator from the NCP1117 to eight to the AP7361C. Both of them are the 3.3 volt variants. So, Stephen, why would I change the voltage regulator? I was just about to say, like, I'm looking at our show notes, and, and beneath that one is just the question, why? I, I'm wondering, was that supposed to be me that asked the question, why did it change? Uh, no, so so why would you change that regulator? Well, I mean, frankly, I don't, I don't know the difference. I don't... I don't know either of those regulators. Uh, One quick question. I know you had a favorite 3.3 volt regulator that you used for a while, and it had pretty good specs and low noise, and it was uh, it the line regulation was good. Was that is or is that one of those two? No, it is not. Okay, okay. So this (laughs) these are two separate ones. Okay, no, no. So the reason why I switched is because of the next feature. Which was adding lithium battery charging support off one <laughs> I, cell. I guess I should have just read the next <laughs> note. <laughs> and so yeah, so I'm I'm adding a uh, single cell lithium battery charger on on the device on the uh, prop dev stick, and so you can have a you know 3.7 volt battery on it. Now, to make that work, you need a LDO or a switching regulator that has a very low dropout. Then, Got so it. you need like a SLDO, a super low drop. Yeah, I was about to say, if you're going from three seven to three three, you have to have a v- ultra high low, uh, yeah, regulate <laughs> <Ultra> LDO. <high laughs> low. <laughs> we coined that term that term here first. Now, ultra high low dropout. Yeah, analog devices. So, if you want to use that, you know, ten bucks our way, ten bucks each of us, <laughs> each of us. Yes. 
And so the cool thing about this new, oh, it's not new. It's made by Diodes Inc. Uh, the AP7361C is at 3.3 volts at about 300 milliamps, uh, which is about what most things I use this thing for. It only has a dropout of 0.14 volts. Wow. That's tiny. Yeah. That's at max, too. Typical is like 0.9. A point oh nine. Yeah, it was <laughs> typical is a lot higher. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, whereas like the NCP one 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 seven is like one point one volts, which is kind of normal for an LDO. And so with I had to switch over to that to get to so that a three point seven volt battery can actually power the thing without you know uh, the voltage regulator dropping out. And so I'm looking at. For the lithium battery charging, I'm looking at the uh, TI PQ24075, mainly because I've already designed that part for a project like four years ago. I, I think we've talked um, about this multiple times where you just look at your backlog and be like, well, it, I, I got that. <laughs> yeah, I got that part already designed. Um, so I don't know if I'm going to change that yet. I'm going to see basically does TI have anything new in that family? And if it's better... It probably will be like better efficiency, that kind of stuff. But I mean, it's a that that's a battery charger that's designed to be powered off of USB uh, for single cell applications. So that's it's like it's a pretty good part, and it works really well. If I recall, with FTDI parts and like their their power, um, the battery monitoring part of that. So like uh, it can detect basically the FTDI like two thirty X can detect it's been hooked up to a charger like a dedicated charger, and so you can pull more more juice, stuff like that. Got it. That's cool. Um, and then, so I haven't finished that routing yet, so I'll post pictures of how far I am into that project. Um, and then I've been testing my USB Type-C example boards. Um, they worked. So I had the 18 mega one uh, somewhere around here. I think it's <laughs> in a box. Um, but... It was working. I, it was working great on the computer, all that stuff. And then I'm like, "Hey, let's see if it works on the phone," because the uh, my Pixel has you know Type C. Plugged it in, and it powered up. Huh? And I actually u- what used like the uh, John, uh, not John. Um, Jason is it Jason? Yes. Yeah, so yes. Uh, yeah. Um, I used his. A USB Explorer and plug that into the phone, and the phone actually does 0.5, not 0.5, uh, five volts at 0.9 amps is what it can supply over USB power. Wow, uh, delivery, which is like, that's like apparently according to him, he actually commented in our Slack channel when I said that that's like the minimal that super speed should provide. Okay, so okay, so basically it's providing the minimal it, it can. Yeah, yeah. Um. And so, but so it actually will power up the board. And the thing is, it doesn't power it up immediately. It waits for a bit, I guess, as the phone's trying to figure out what just got plugged into it, <laughs> and then reads the resistors and goes, "Okay, it's a device, a dumb device. I'm going to provide power to it." So that works. But the problem is, I can't talk to it. Hmm. Like I can't open up a COM port or I can't emulate a keyboard, which works fine on the computer. Right. So I'm like, okay, why is that? Um, and, for, and I can't find like my AVR ISP programmer, so I can't override the bootloader. Um, so I've been using like Atmel Flip to basically I, I like compile the code in Arduino, find the dot hex file in like my temporary file folder on my computer, and then use Atmel Flip to upload that. Hmm. And so that works, but it's kind of annoying. I, I, once I find my uh, AVR ISP programmer, I'll actually like put the Arduino bootloader on it. But for some reason, that's not working on the phone. And so I'm like, okay, what's going on here? Let me try to figure something else out. So I took an Arduino Leonardo, put the same code on it, but this time I could like compile it and upload it directly through Arduino since it has the Arduino bootload on it. And then I used uh, a uh, USB type A to type C converter board. So it has like type C plug on it and then a socket for type A. And so using a USB micro to USB A, you know, normal cable plugged into my phone and that works. Hmm. And so for some reason, using the dongle worked. And so I'm like, okay, what's so special about the dongle? And so I (laughs) plugged it into 
my USB Type-C, uh, I have a USB Type-C like breakout board, so it breaks all the pins out. Got and it. so I started measuring all the pins. All the, it, it looks normal, except the CC, one of the CC pins is pulled down with 5.1K, which is what you'd expect, but the other one is left floating. And so I'm like, okay, why? That's not even in the spec. The spec says to pull both down. Hmm. But it's only that connector is that the, the dongle is only connecting one side of the uh, USB 2.0 data lines because it has two pairs so it can handle the flipping right. motion. Right. But on the dongle, only one was connected. So I'm uh. like, okay, that's weird. And it's it's on the same side of so like A5 position A5 is the CC pin on the A bank and there's a B bank. So A5 and then A6 and A7 are the data minus and data plus for it. And then on the other side is B5, B6, B7. So but only one of those is hooked up. So like A5, A6, A7. And then if you flip it over, of course, it's B5, B6, B7. So why does that make it any different, right? Yeah. Than what I had. So I like cut the trace and left one of the CC pins floating. And they cut the traces that connected the TXRX lines, not TXRX lines. That's <laughs> yeah, this that's is USB. serial that's protocol. Yeah. D minus D plus. Cut right. those lines. Plug that in. Still didn't work. Hmm. I'm like, what's going on here? And so I, then I took the my breakout board, the USB Type C breakout board, and connected that manually to the Leonardo board, Arduino Leonardo board, and that worked. So I'm like, that hardware implementation is what I put on this board, and the board's not working. So I think. For some reason, the default Leonardo, uh, default 18 mega 32 U4, U4 yeah. bootloader is not compatible with the Pixel in terms of whatever driver it needs, whereas the uh, Arduino one is. That's weird. That's the only thing I can think of, and I'm going to, once I finally find my AVR ISP programmer and make mine Arduino compatible with the bootloader, I bet you it will just work. Huh. Basically, I spent like two full afternoons on the weekend, like pulling my hair out over this. <laughs> and I think it's just because there's a bootloader firmware conflict somewhere going on and like the startup sequence. Yeah, their startup communication is just. Yeah. Hmm. Which is kind of frustrating because I basically ruined my 18 mega 38, uh, 32U4 board by like cutting a whole bunch of stuff. <laughs> And so I'm like, ah, oh, man, I'm going to use this for an article and it's going to look ugly. And so I'm going to have to like, I basically I'm going to respin that board. Just, just always pictures of the other side of the board. <laughs> that's true. But yeah, <sighs> frustrating. Yeah. But hey, I think I found the solution. We'll know by the next podcast if it was or not. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. And the last project I've been kind of working on is that the wagons power mirror controller. And that works correctly. Um, I don't know if you've seen it, Stephen. I, I have not. Uh, the the it looks like the back of your room is covered in uh, plastic wrap. So yeah, they've been doing some drywall work over ah, here. Okay. But so I've got the the board here, and I think we talked about this. Like um, Mike Williams at Macrofab made me some bats. Oh yeah, yeah. The, Mike Williams he has a, uh, a clockworker's lathe, right? Yes, and so he turned some little tiny aluminum toggle bats for these deep the four-way directional switches yeah and i hooked one up kind of like manually to the like i tore my door panel apart and like hacked it into the the wiring harness and it works it moves the mirrors up and down left and right and uh so next step on this project is to take the door panel back apart and then measure the door panel like, like there's an opening there in the sheet metal measure that and measure the offset, like how far back I need to put the board and like model a, a uh, bracket and then 3D print the bracket that this PCB will sit in and then drill the holes out in the, in the uh, door card and wire it in. It should just work. Nice. And, and th those are just four-way switches. You don't have any other uh, stuff on that board, right? Oh, no, no, no. So the four-way switches can only handle like, like 50 milliamps. Okay. And those the motors can pull, oh, was it like 150 milliamps? Okay. And so I actually have motor drivers on the back. 
Ah, uh, okay. okay. So I, I, I'll post. I think I posted the schematic before, but it's got um, motor drivers, and I actually have an LDO because I couldn't find because I wanted to use really small motor controllers. Mm-hmm. So these are like SOIC eight packages with like a thermal pad, which is kind of weird looking. But um, I had to use an LDO on it to drop twelve volts to five volts because that's what the I/O on those motor controllers run at. Got it. Okay. Um, but the actual motors are running at 12 volts. Uh, but for some reason, like, you can't interface the, you know, the uh, input pins and enable pins. For some reason, you can't drive those with 12 volts. Just this particular motor controller. Got it. Okay. Very cool. But, yeah. So, got to get that installed. Yeah, that's probably going to be next weekend. I'll, I'll get that bracket all designed and printed up. You're going to 3D print it? Yeah, I mean, I got a 3D printer, and it can make any object I would <laughs> dream to make. Is that going to be robust enough? It's, it's going to be out of polycarbonate, so it should be. Oh, okay. Okay, you're not going to do It's going to be the same thing that we made your um, the peristaltic, peristaltic pump. pump out of. Actually, okay, so uh, funny enough, I, our, our listeners can't see this, but within reach, I have, well, now I'm dropping stuff all over my bench. Uh, I have a peristaltic pump that I purchased, actually, uh, from... I love it. The uh, electronic store that's in Houston, uh, we've talked about it a handful of times, EPO, uh, they posted on Facebook just an image. They had like 15 peristaltic pumps. And uh, I just, I I have the uh, phone number of the guy who owns the store. I just sent him a text and I was like, peristaltic pump, send me now. And uh, (laughs) so he actually, yeah, we we struck a deal and he, he sent me one of these pumps, which is super cool. So yeah, sure. I have uh, the 3D printed one, which is awesome. And I totally still want to use it, but I also have like a, a a laboratory grade peristaltic pump now, which frankly kind of sucks because it's, it is a DC motor on the back. So I'm going to have to rip that DC motor off and put a stepper on it uh, to get, what are you going to use that for? Cause the tubing's not that large. Uh, so what's cool about this one is uh, you could select whatever size tubing up to a certain uh, level. This is a very thin tubing. This was used in a uh, uh, gosh, this was a uh, in a chemical engineering firm in Houston, uh, and they went out of business. And EPO got all the all the peristaltic pumps. Yeah. Uh, so I looked it up before I bought this, and you can get larger tubing, and this can deliver three gallons a minute at the fastest and it has an accuracy of 0.1 milliliter uh dosage oh wow so yeah if you want to if you want to get stupid accurate you can do that uh okay so i've got a funny and slightly so how do how do they do that accuracy with a dc motor i don't know i the, the thing is okay so this this was sent to me where it, it was obviously hacked out of something there's wires hanging off of it and there's a power board that has some of those um some of those like you know those transistor packages that that they're meant to bolt up against a heat sink and they have like 10 or 15 like angled pins that come out and mm-hmm. stuff. They're like they, it looks like audio amplifiers but they must be motor drivers that's what i'm guessing so this this board is pretty simple it has some high watt resistors it has some big caps it has one of those amplifier things but it has four little trim pots that say Minimum speed, IR compensation, maximum speed, and TQ limit. Who knows what any of that actually means? So there must be some kind of like timing circuit that. I wonder if it's a um, optical encoder. Is there an encoder on it? No, there's not. It's literally just a DC motor with a transmission that goes into the heads, and there's no feedback. That I can see. Um, I mean, it could be doing EMF feedback. Jeez, that's fancy. But that'd be kind of, yeah, kind of weird. Well, and this is so. This is still this is still manufactured. Let me see if I can get the part number. This is a uh, where is it? I got the customer number <laughs> written on here. Uh, I don't see the part number written on here. I don't know. I'll I'll, I'll find it. I I had it. I had it somewhere. Uh, so. Funny, funny story about this is I bought this this pump and, and they shipped it up here and uh, I was playing with it on uh, on the floor of my living room and at the time I was watching 
like a Nova documentary or something. I don't, I don't remember what it was. Basically, I had the TV on and it was uh, background noise. And they were talking about something about being healthy or something and uh, human biology. And then they went into, and this is, you know, sorry if this is a little gross. They went into uh, fecal transplants, if you've ever heard of that, where, like, you can transfer stuff from one person's body to another person's body and the live bacteria cultures can be beneficial and there's studies going into it and i heard that and i looked up and there was a video of a fecal transplant at least just the equipment and there was this peristaltic pump oh, no. and it was pumping poop <laughs> so i was like okay well, chemical company huh uh, well yeah yeah oh, okay so I will buy all brand Did new Did you tubing. like swab it down with alcohol? Before I brew with this, I'm going to get brand new tubing. <laughs> <laughs> Sterilize everything with alcohol. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I honestly, well, I mean, if it's in Houston, it was passing oil and gas. That's that's the only thing that. Gas, happens. huh? Yeah, yeah. Peristaltic gas pump. Uh, gosh, how did we get on that tangent? Oh, yeah, you're, you're, you're polycarbonate. Yeah, polycarbonate. No, it was just. <laughs> It was just funny because it was sitting it was sitting right on top of one of my speakers here. You know, we should do a video on that peristaltic pump that we did design. You know, okay. Because we built it and it works. We, well, we built it and it works. And even above and beyond that, after we tested it the first time around, we built that back cap. I installed a stepper motor and I wrote some, some quick Arduino code and I was like dosing specific amounts uh, and it, I mean, it worked actually pretty well. The biggest flaw in the design was that um, it didn't pinch the tubing enough. It 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 works fine at generally low RPM, but if you if you really juice it, then uh, it starts to slip. And uh, so I was gonna actually just put a shim on the internal radius to just kind of crush the tube a little bit more, but you know, and then I moved. Yeah, we should just build another one. Yeah, yeah, that was fun. That was 20-something hours of printing. Oh, for one piece. Yeah, yeah. I think I still have the... Well, you probably still have the model for sure. Yeah, I still have the model somewhere. It's on my computer. So. Yeah. Okay, but so besides parasoptic pumps that pump poo, <laughs> what have you been working on, Stephen? Uh, so I've had a handful of uh, work projects, like the 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 work I get paid to do projects that have been consuming my time. But uh, in the, in the kind of the side time that I've had recently, I have two quick little things. So Josh Roser or Roz, he was our guest for the last star Wars podcast. Uh, he's been building guitar amplifiers for a long time. He and I kind of started at the same time and um, he, he's got a new design that he's working on. And uh, I've been kind of coaching him through a handful of electronic stuff. And uh, we wanted to look at a new form of uh, tone controls, you know, bass, middle, treble kind of stuff. And for the longest time, there was a architecture that I wanted to build up and try. And I've had all the parts sitting in a box somewhere. And I was like, you know what? I'm like, I was going to do it all like nice, make a board and stuff. And it's like, there's no need. There's like 10 parts. So I did a point to point like little solder job and uh, pulled out my old high voltage power supply that we talked about a handful of podcasts ago. You know, the one that has like blown up capacitors and stuff inside. Oh yeah. And it still works. It's, yeah. Oh, it still works great. Uh, I fired it up and there's just, I'm not going to touch it. It works fine. Uh, you know, I, I measured everything and the noise is great. So it's just whatever. I'm, I'll just take it till it fails basically and then fix it. Uh, but regardless, <laughs> this so this tone stack w- runs on or needs to be able to run on high voltage because I don't want to do voltage translation down to low and then have to amplify it back up. I want to be able to do my filtering at high voltage. And there's this really great part that's actually made by microchip. Uh, it's a transistor called the LND150. I believe we've talked about it in the past, but here it is again. LND150. And it's a it's a high voltage MOSFET, so it can go up to I believe 500 volts, but it can basically take a small signal of like one to or up to about four volts in, and it can amplify the living bejesus out of it with a 500 volt supply. So I threw together this tone stack that came out of a PV amplifier that was um, 
Well, they have it in two different amplifiers. One's called the Triple X and one's called the JSX, which the JSX is Joe Satriani. Satriani. Uh, that's his like signature model. He's a virtuoso guitar player. If you, you've probably seen him before. A little bit goofy, <laughs> okay. but <laughs> I'll give you. I'll take your word for it. One of the uh, one of the things I so back when I was repairing amps, I, I played on a handful of these, and I loved this tone stack because it was so powerful like and when, when you turn the mids knob like it worked uh that's that's a huge complaint about old guitar amps was because they tried to do three levels of filtering passively in like in a real tight compact low component count solution and what what ends up happening I like, you know, well you know what low component count really stands for crappy cheap oh well yeah cheap for sure <laughs> But but the thing the thing that always sucked about old tone stacks is that you get three you get bass middle treble pick two two of those are going to work one of them will basically do nothing so some amps the bass control and the treble control are really powerful and if you turn the mid knobs you, you sort of don't even hear anything change but but it's there it's just really really weak and it's it's there to check a box off on the design dock basically basically but with this design of this tone stack it uses an active feedback so the the transistor uh, well it inverts the signal but it also feeds back into the tone stack itself so each knob even though they they interact a little bit they interact a quite a bit less than a passive tone stack and they all do what they need to do and in the jsx and the triple x by pv those are both uh, the feedback path is is via a vacuum tube. Well, I don't I don't want to do that. I I'd rather just throw something in that makes it a lot easier. Well, this LND one fifty does the whole job and has a gain of one hundred while you know running uh, on anywhere between eighty and four hundred ish volts. So uh, so I built this up on my bench and, and tested it out and everything worked really great. So that was uh, that was really convenient. Because it was one of those things where it's just like fired up and it's like, hey, I've been wanting to build this for literally years and it just works. So uh, your brain was just thinking about it the entire time. Yeah. Yeah. It was just mulling on it that entire time. Uh, yeah. That little LND 150 is super awesome and it's super specific. And it's also like, why would Microchip be the one who makes this? Because it's just so weird. But it seems like it seems like a good solution if you are doing really high voltage switching or something like that. I don't know. They could have bought a company that made it. Yeah, probably. Yeah, I think there's I think there's someone else who makes it also. Um, so I don't know. But uh, but if you ever need high voltage amplifier, and high voltage can mean you know hundred volts, not it doesn't have to be like five hundred. Uh, then this little guy is great, and it's available on Mauser, and it's not expensive. So. There you go. I think that's a good question we've never talked about before. What do you consider, Stephen, as high voltage? Ah, uh, high voltage would be anything that I have to use a transformer or a switch mode power supply to go up from. So, in other words, anything above two forty, because two forty is readily available, and ah. I don't have to. I don't have to do anything special to get above that. Gotcha. Okay, that's high voltage. I consider high voltage anything over five. <laughs> <laughs> no, anything over one. Oh yeah, yeah, you're right, you're right, yeah. Uh, yeah the yeah, digital yeah. joke there. Yeah. Eh. No, fifty volts is what I would consider anything over that's high voltage. Got it. You know that makes mainly sense. from that's a pain aspect. Fifty volts is a pain to get or to generate because you'd have to just you'd have to. Um, uh, pinball machine solenoids typically run at forty-eight to fifty volts. Sure, but but what, I, so. what I'm getting at is like it's not common, so that's where sure. it would become a pain. It's not one of the stock values. Oh no, no, I'm not saying like pain in terms of like it's hard to do. I'm pain is in like if you get hit by 50 volts, that's the threshold of pain of like oh that was not fun to get hit by 50 volt AC. Yeah, yeah. What uh, I I don't know off the top of my head. I but I know like. I know I've touched 24 volts without feeling anything. Uh, what 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 is in general? What's the threshold of voltage before you feel something? I mean, it, it, it's around. I, that's the thing. It's around 45. At least for me, it's around 45, 50 volts. Oh, okay, okay. You you so know that's what, what I consider. Saying. I think that's what I consider basically is not comfortable to handle that voltage anymore. So you have to start taking precautions. Yeah. 
Okay, okay. I, I, you know, it would have to depend on like a thousand things, like how salty your hands are and the uh, how nasty, sweaty you are. Yeah, 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 for sure. Because I mean, one volt could hurt pretty bad if you <laughs> if you get hit by that. But yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. But I, but yeah, no, I'd like. I know twenty four volts. You know, unintentionally, I've touched it. But I've also been like, oh, I'm touching twenty four volts, and I didn't even know. You know. <laughs> and then, what would you consider high amperage? High amperage over over a half of an amp because it takes in general the threshold to stop your heart is a half an amp. Uh, so, but from left hand to right hand, uh, you know, half an amp. So that's what I would say. And mine is one amp because a ten mil trace can carry over most boards an amp. And so if you go higher than that, then you have to be like, okay, I now I have to actually pay attention to what this trace is doing. So 10 mil on one ounce copper, right? On just like yes. standard Joe Schmo stuff. Yeah. yeah, Joe Schmo stuff. You know, okay, so quick quick tangent. How often do you do trace calculators? Only when it's over an amp. <laughs> <laughs> only, only when you think you need to, right? Yeah. No, really, it's like, okay, when I'm doing a board, I'll usually pick 10 mils unless I need to do a really dense design or there's some impedance stuff i'm like eh, 10 mil is going to be enough because i know it's a microcontroller and it's like it can at most put out 25 milliamps on that pin yeah what, 10 mils is gonna be plenty so uh, when i start doing power like for the like the the pinball controllers i, I are designing yeah the the power stuff i'm like calculating that out but usually it's like i'll take the size it recommends and then like double that sometimes just to keep heat down if I have space. Because there's nothing wrong increasing the width. If you have space for it. Right, right. Well, and you know that one of the reasons why I kind of mentioned that is because those calculators can get really confusing. Uh, a lot of times they barrage you with a lot of information. And you have to know... They're not just like a one-stop shop. You know, you put in your information, but you also have to know some other aspects about your board. Like, is it going to be coded? And what does that even mean if it's coded? Uh, is this an internal trace? Blah, blah, blah. You know, you have to know that kind of stuff. Because if you if you just go to one of the online calculators and type in your numbers, a lot of times you'll be shocked at how big it says you actually need them to be. When in reality, they don't actually need to be that big, you know? Uh, so mm -hmm. it's it's certainly worth looking up. And the couple that I've done more recently have links to the uh, the standards that they use for that. Go read those. That's actually worthwhile. I don't I don't remember the numbers. I think they're IPC dash something for the trace width standards. But there's like good reasoning as to why trace width needs to be X Y Z. Correct. Yeah. So in general, with the audio circuits that I do that are like between 12 and 24 volts. I do 10 or 12 mil traces for signal stuff and then 20 or 30 for power stuff. But like power in just like the power supply area. So I've found that, that that's a good balance between being able to handle enough current and, uh, well, I mean, 30 mils can handle a ton of current, but uh, like be really low impedance and then 10 mils gives good routing without crazy clearances and crap so correct yeah and and in your world though it's also like handling uh your trace trace spacing is important because you don't want that 400 volts to kind of like arc through the solder mask <laughs> yeah i've i had that happen once and it made i was sad because i designed an entire board and then realized that i the last thing i did was um put a copper pour on the whole thing and I didn't have enough clearance and 350 jumped across that and left a nice little I bet you it looked pretty for about 30 seconds. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Kind of sucked. You learn. Yep. Okay, so uh, one other quick thing I, I think I talked about it last week, the macro amp, uh, I resurrected that project. So uh, two of the things, I'm looking at the component layout uh, the basically where everything goes. I had an idea on how things were going to be, and I'm sort of doing a little bit of an audible on that. One of the things was, this has two output transformers, one power transformer, and a choke, all in a small package. So 
I'm really focusing on getting all of those 90 degrees to each other. So with that, you have to have three axes of getting them 90, just because I don't want any cross coupling or anything like that. So uh, basically I have uh, the steel plate that is the top of the amp and I'm gonna be throwing that on the mill at work here soon and just slap some holes in it and get things rolling on it. And then uh, I did a, a review of the board and uh, this was, one of the first boards that I hand soldered at Macrofab and I use lead free solder and I just do not like the way it looks. So I'm going to touch up a good handful of these joints. They all add a little lead. They look kind of like butt. So I'm going to, I'm going <laughs> to fix them up a little bit. So yeah, that's, that's what I've been up to. Cool. Yep. On to the RFO. Mm -hmm. So this first article I found earlier today and I fell in love with it. This is called Know Your Fits and Tolerance. And it's a Hackaday article that it's one of the mini articles that's basically just showcasing a video. So we'll post the, uh, the link of this up on the show notes that you can go check. But this video is a great kind of like primer into mechanical fits and tolerances. So when you're designing something that needs to fit into something else or fit together with something else there's there's almost an art to picking the right hole sizes you know one of the examples they give in the video is you got a 10 millimeter hole and you want to fit a 10 millimeter stud in that hole you don't just say 10 millimeters you know and that although that seems really simple and that that concept is really straightforward you asking the question, okay, so what should the stud be and what should the hole be? That ends up ballooning into a giant issue. You know, uh, it gets really tough. So this video covers all, all, all different types of fits, and it and it really digs into the stuff you'll find in the ANSI standards uh, that you, you can look up in the Machinist Handbook, which by the way is thirty five bucks on Amazon and is worth having a copy of that. You know, even if you're a purely an electrical guy, like at, you're still making mounting holes, you still make mounting holes. You'll still you'll still interface with a mechanical guy. And at some point in time, like I, you know, no matter how much board stuff you do, eventually it has to like become the real world and be a thing, you know, so it will go inside of something or it will connect to something. And so regardless, having the machinist handbook, it's the like Bible for all of this stuff. So there's like charts and pages and pages of types of fits and the like R6, R3, that kind of stuff. They cover that in this video and show examples of like, this is what it'll look like. So they really boil it down for guys like me where it's like, okay, that's the kind of fit I want. And I see like it has this much wiggle and I can kind of like work that out. Uh, so I, I really appreciate that mainly because I'm not a mechanical guy by trade i've done enough of it to like have a good feel for it but you know it's not like i went to school for that so uh go check this video out totally worthwhile i am going to watch it before i go to bed tonight yeah also they have a really great point in there for new engineers uh consider your tolerances and one of the mistakes that gets made very often is that new engineers will just pick tolerances that are just extremely tight uh, you know, they'll do because they want it to be perfect. They, they want it to be perfect and they don't have that it's gut. five millimeters and it will be five millimeters. Exactly. exactly. Like you got to learn the gut feel for how much fat you can add back into your design. Like how much slop are you allowed to uh, give in your design? You know, mm -hmm. and and if your design actually does need precision, fine. But put that in the in the place that it needs precision. So, so you know, the exact same thing kind of comes up a lot. If you uh, if you deal with like precision analog, it's like where do I put my five dollar op amp and where do I put my ten cent op amp? Uh, mm -hmm. You know, getting getting a good feel for where those go and when to use them, that's valuable, really valuable. So I'm yeah, I'm going to check out that video tonight, and uh, I'm looking forward to it. Sounds good. Yeah. So your friend made a video game. Oh, sorry. This is kind yeah. of a weird topic. Sorry, I just saw that. On <laughs> so, a buddy of mine at work, uh, he is our firmware programmer, but he does he does some other coding also. He's an excellent firmware programmer, and self taught. Uh, on top of that, just brilliant guy. He made 
a game over the weekend called Pillow Fight, and I just thought I would uh, showcase this because it's just kind of funny. So uh, we'll put the link it's up. It's a two-player game. It's a two-player game. It, it was So he came over for a party I had not that long ago, and we played the new Smash Brothers, and um, he he likes the game, but he was also like, man, I, I want to make my own version of Smash Brothers that has the simplicity that I want. And it's a great little game. <laughs> it's like a little, yeah. it's like an old flash game, uh, in a way, but, uh, I don't know. Like, and it reminds me a lot of the old arcade game joust. Yeah. Kind of like the mechanics of the idea is like there's two characters that bounce on beds yep. and the floor is lava. <laughs> and so they jump and hit each other and then knock each other down into the, the floor. Yeah, and, and some of the, you know, a lot of the impressive stuff is the fact that there's a lot of momentum and inertia that was taken into account. It's not like you press left and you're just going left or right yeah. or anything like that. There's, there's, uh, your characters have weight, even though they're little stick men. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so pretty fun. I thought I'd just throw that out there. Uh, go check out. Link in the description, Yeah, people. link in the description. All right, so the last topic is, uh, see, I can't even pronounce this company. Uh, Kalashnikov? The AK-47 <laughs> assault rifle company changed the world. Now there's an AK-47 kamikaze drone. So how do you pronounce that? Kal- Kal- Kalashnikov. And uh, that's a guy, not a company. Okay. Yeah. I thought it is a company, though, now. Uh, I'm into, I mean, the original designer of the AK-47, his last name was Kalashnikov. Yeah, I think it is a company now, though. Yes, because I think they're also making... So they're making... They make lots of different kinds of weapons to sell to people, but they also make an electric car, I think. Really? Well, I mean, it's it's a last name, so it could be, you know, be anyone. Right? That's true. Yeah. yeah, AK-47 maker makes new electric car. Okay. Is the car called the Kalashnikov? Yes. That's awesome. Every product they have is just the Kalashnikov. <laughs> it's like CV-1 or something like that. It actually is very interesting. I'll put the link in here, too, since we're going to talk about Go check out that. Okay. From the website DZine. Whatever the hell that means. Um, so, yeah. Um, they're making a kamikaze drone, a low-cost drone that carries bomb, like uh, carries explosives, and you fly it and blow things up. Um, <laughs> so, the whole the whole idea with this is um, they're, I guess, they're, they're building it as it's ch- going to change Warfare, kind of like how the AK-47 changed warfare. It's, it was a cheap gun. It allowed rebels to rise up, and so this allows rebels to actually buy drone hardware now. And so, I don't really want to talk about that. I want to talk about kind of like what this is like. The first we're seeing kind of like cheap RC kind of stuff being used for warfare now, like from a not like buy like a drone off Amazon and put a bomb on it, but like a company's <laughs> actually weaponizing something and selling it, intend, it, like intending it to be a weapon now. Yeah, that well, and, um, and broadcasting that. Yes, and broadcasting it. So like the intention here is different. It's not like you're buying a drone that's designed to carry a camera and then putting a bomb on it. They're like selling this as a weapons platform now. Um, and so what is this implementation? Uh, the how is this going to like impact the drone community and RC planes and that kind of stuff? Um, and it also goes into kind of like 3d printers. Cause that was the, that was the whole big thing about four or five years ago. Like 3d printers were printing guns now and Ooh, the media went crazy and you know, we still haven't seen a ban on 3d printers yet. Um, so I don't think this is going to really impact, you know, the, uh, citizens, so to speak in terms of, you know, it's not going to impact like RC planes. Like they're not going to make those illegal yet. (laughs) Maybe we need to put drones and RC planes under the second amendment. (laughs) Second. Yeah. yeah. The right to carry our, to bear arms and fly RC airplanes. Yeah. (laughs) Right to fly arms. Right to I like that. Yeah, right to fly arms. There we go. <laughs> it, it it takes an act of God to do a uh, constitutional amendment, though. So we need we we would need a lot of support on this one. 
So so I'm reading this article now, and, and it's interesting because in the first sentence, they call it a suicide drone. So this thing isn't intended to deliver a payload. It's meant to be the payload. Yeah, it is the payload. That's crazy. Okay. It, and it's supposed to be really inexpensive. It goes 80 miles an hour. But it's like, oh, yeah, this is a RC plane that someone just strapped a little brick of C4 to. It's like, hmm. <laughs> Wow. Fun. Yeah, that's crazy. So now it's going to be one of those, you know, it's the unfortunate thing is like, who's going to be, who's going to use one of these first against, you know, people. Oh, that's the unfortunate thing you got to think about. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's interesting because uh, right now on Hackaday on their front page, they have an article about the, uh, the FAA mandating external registration markings for drones. Uh, I'm wondering. So is this going to be like, we like when you paint the, Register numbers for your like plane on the tail. Yeah, similar. I don't think it's as uh, bold. Let's put it that way. Um, so it looks like the FAA is requiring drones, and I don't know exactly the requirements on like size of drones, but they they use the wording small drones. So I'm, it says there's a weight limit, two hundred fifty grams. Okay, well, but that's tiny. So. Uh, like how much does the paper airplane weigh? Well, not two hundred and fifty grams. I can guarantee <laughs> you that. Uh, like you know, you know, like the the drones that like you'd see like flying around taking pictures at a wedding, like those kinds of drones that are like bigger than the ones you buy at a toy store because they actually have okay. to carry weight. Like that would be over two hundred fifty grams. Uh, so the, the, the requirement now is to actually have FAA marking on the device and they say it must be external to the device. So it must be something that if the device crashes, uh, they could recover it and see that with or explodes in the case of these new ones. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Well, and, and they do give a caveat that you are allowed to mark the drones on the inside of a, the device, as long as the internal cavity that the, it is marked in is accessible without tools. So if there's like a motor access point or a battery compartment that has just like a finger tab to open it up, the FAA marking can be in there. And it's kind of interesting that we're talking about this at the same time, because I'm wondering if there's some kind of correlation or connection to these Probably there's a little bit there. It wouldn't surprise me. I mean, I'm not sure. I'm sure a lot of this is way bigger than what we know about. Probably. Especially like if you're broadcasting remote control uh, bombs and missiles like, like the, for sale. Like that's kind of strange. So somebody, somebody's known about it for a lot longer than we have. Uh, that's true. But it's like this company, they make arms to sell. So it makes sense that you know, that they are advertising because that's their whole point. You know, they're trying to find people to buy it. Yeah. I kind of like that. The design looks really cool, though. Um, I wonder if you can get it in a non-exploding version. <laughs> you know, it looks a like... A semi-automatic drone. It looks like a lot of those concept drawings for the the <laughs> new version of the shuttle. You know, if you've ever seen that. You know where? Oh, yeah, from like the mid late 90s. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, very interesting. Uh, just out of random curiosity, have you ever shot a uh, AK-47? I have not. I've shot a M16 before, but not a AK-47. Oh. I have not an M- uh, M16, but I have shot an AK before. So. Um, my favorite... Um, <laughs> we're getting way into weeds no, here yeah, now. Yeah, we're getting weird. Um, but my favorite build thread ever... Uh, so this is like... This is like beats all the car ones, electronics I've seen. This it must be a, really good. If if it, it was a build thread of someone who built a AK forty seven from scratch out of a shovel. <laughs> and so I have to post Wait, the like, link. And it's when amazing. you say out of a shovel, like take the metal and like smelt it down and and redo. No, it? no, he took the shovel, flattened it, yeah. and the sheet metal, and made the receiver out of the sheet metal that was what the shovel was made out of no lie and made all the internal parts from that sheet metal the stock was the handle part of the shovel <laughs> and then he had a and then he bought a, a barrel that was matched in the caliber wow that's incredible and it worked and he said it was actually besides being really heavy it worked really well <laughs> <laughs> well okay so uh regardless of of anyone's feelings on on weaponry 
if you want to look at a marvel of engineering the ak-47 is like a tested proven design that i mean i heard a report or an article not that long ago that one was found in in the desert that had been under like sand dunes for like 35 years they pulled it out like basically dumped the sand out loaded it and shot it like it and and in relation to those tolerances that we were talking earlier like it's a that's a great example of where you do not need precision that gun is very unprecise and it's built in like a a good portion of it is built like stamped steel you know stamped and and bent steel it's not milled it's it's designed to be very inexpensive to assemble correct and manufacture um and now I would say that's probably its shine only shining point. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, the, the, uh, everything else about it is terrible. <laughs> it, it, if if you set it up right, it, it is an accurate gun. Uh, but you know, if you just go nuts with it, it's not going to be accurate. Like any and you build other it out gun. of a shovel. Yeah, if you build it out of a shovel. Okay, so <laughs> another fun, uh, quick little YouTube video. Go check this out sometime. Uh, there's a comparison, a slow-mo firing comparison of an AK next to an M16. And uh, it shows the AK, like, once the actual round fires, the gun, like, vibrates and slides and, like, jiggles all over the place, whereas the M16 is, like, very smooth and very, like, direct. But there's a big cost difference, and there's a lot of different, you know, uh, build time cost difference. So uh, it's a really, that's a fun one to go watch, so. Yep. Well, I'll have to find that video and put it into the show notes. Yep. Cool. Well, hopefully we don't lose any listeners with our gun talk. <laughs> Fingers crossed. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Um, so, yeah, that was the MacFab Engineering Podcast. We were your hosts, Parker Dillman. And Stephen Craig. See you later, everyone. Take it easy. Thank you, yes, you, our listener, for downloading our show. If you have a cool idea, project, topic, let Steven and I know. Tweet us at MacFab, at Longhorn Engineer, or at Analog ENG, or email us at podcast at MacFab.com. Also, check out our Slack channel. I'm sure all our listeners will complain about our topics this time. If you're not subscribed to the podcast yet, click that subscribe button. That way you get the latest map episode right when it releases. And please review us wherever you listen as it helps this show stay visible and helps new listeners find us.